All right, as you're grabbing your hand out, if you want an electronic copy on left, you have some type of electronic device in here that you have to like. If you go to the website, www.cbcws.org and forward slash notes.pdf. So forward slash notes.pdf, you can download an electronic copy of that as well. We have been marching through the book of Hebrews. Um, God willing, we will get through chapter 1. Uh, this is our third sermon uh, today. We're actually moving at a pretty steady pace. Um, there's a lot to cover, hence a handout I thought would be helpful. So big picture, if you don't want to look at the handout at all and you just want to listen, and, and not have to worry about writing things down or, or having references. I don't plan on uh, referring to anything, at least I plan on anything that's not on that handout. So if you just want to relax, that's fine. If you want a good place to be able to follow, I should follow that pretty closely um, as we walk through it together. So Hebrews chapter 1, let's begin by reading the uh, chapter in its entirety together. So let me begin for us by reading Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, verse 4, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So there's the major argument of chapter 4, that Jesus has a name that is better than the angels. So last time, what we did is we paused from Hebrews altogether and just said, well, let's look at angels. If he's got this name that's better than angels, it's probably best that we understand who are the angels. So that was last time. Alright, so verse 5. Now the argument's going to be laid out. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Verse 7. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, of, of rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they 
Not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who would inherit salvation. And one of the things you'll probably notice, in, in, depending on how your Bible is laid out, if you look in your Bible on it, you'll see lots of indentations. Uh, and that's because it's showing you there are lots of passages out of the Old Testament being quoted by the author of Hebrews here in the New Testament. And that's why I thought it would be helpful to try to put those together for you in one place so you're not having to flip around the entire time. Let's go to the Lord and ask for help. Father, we are frail creatures. It doesn't take much for us to see that. It can be a new story. It can be waking up with a cold. It could be a diagnosis from the doctor. It could be some wintry weather falling from the sky that completely changes our plans. We are very, very frail creatures. And by your great common grace, we know so much today in our modern culture. And it is unbelievable what all we do not know. You are God. You've never changed. There's nothing you don't know. You have a full grasp of everything. And in your great kindness, you have revealed yourself to us. We don't deserve that, but you've been kind to do that. And so God, I pray that you would find us an eager people centered around your word this morning not taking your word, your revelation of yourself for granted, but eagerly waiting for you to speak to us from your word. And by your word, would you grow your people? Would you save us unto eternity by your word? Your word this morning is clear. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is enough for us. Period. Pray this morning that by your spirit, your word would be heard, it would be believed, and it, Lord, it would be followed and applied in our lives. We ask these things to you, Father. We ask them to the name, the precious name of Jesus, that you now would apply these by your spirit. Amen. You may have heard it said that Christianity is not a religion, but it's a relationship. And on one hand, that, that does offer a helpful corrective. If by religion one simply means following a certain set of rules, then we can affirm that Christianity is not simply following certain rules. It's not merely doing certain things or refraining from doing other things. And if by calling Christianity a relationship, one means to emphasize the importance in Scripture of a relationship or one's relationship uh, to God, then certainly we can see that that's very much true. But still, such a statement, a statement that Christianity is, is not a religion but a relationship, it's problematic. Because Christianity is a religion. That is, to be a Christian, there are a set of beliefs, a certain set of beliefs that one must affirm or deny. There are certain actions that one should engage in and certain ones that one should refrain from. So let me suggest, if we're looking for an R word that best describes Christianity, it feels like Sesame Street, doesn't it? 
Um, if we're looking for an R word that best describes Christianity, there's one more fitting than religion. There's one more fitting than relationship. It is the word revelation. Christianity, at its core, is a revelation. At the very core of Christianity is God revealing Himself to us. Making Himself known. So Christianity is about news. It's news given over to us by God. So if you like news, I love news. I, I just enjoy news. Uh, in fact, I want an app called, it's a little long for the title, but something on the lines of, this is seriously really breaking news. I promise this actually is breaking news. I want that app. It's a little long, but I want it. Um, and if, if I see any fashion in there, it's out. I don't want any entertainment in there. It's out. I want really great. Anyway, I love news. Well, if you like news, and Christianity is set up great for you. It is about news. And the book of Hebrews is focused on the news that Jesus Christ is better. It is a sermon with a central theme. Persevere because Jesus is worth it all. And this morning, we'll focus our attention on the argument in the first chapter that Jesus is better than angels. So a few weeks back, Pastor Mark opened our study up in the book of Hebrews by considering the first three verses. Here we saw that the author of Hebrews wasted no time whatsoever putting forth the theme that Jesus is better as he presented a seven-fold argument for the superiority of the Messiah, Jesus. In those three verses... We are told that Jesus first is the heir of all things. Jesus Christ owns everything. Second, we're told that He created all things. Third, we're told that to see Jesus is to see the very glory of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. He goes on to say that Jesus is the perfect image of God's character. He's a perfect stamp of God the Father. We are told, fifthly, that Jesus not only created all things, but He preserves all the things that He created. He holds them all together. Sixth, we're told that Jesus accomplished perfect purification for sins. So the very One who created us came and rescued us when we, His creation, rebelled against Him. And He became the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And finally, we are told that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the majesty of God. Jesus reigns supreme. And for just in anticipation of this sermon, two weeks ago we took a break from Hebrews and we just looked across the Scriptures at the idea of angels. And we looked at how angels are wonderful examples of what it looks like to serve and to worship God. We considered how angels were used the very, from the very beginning to reveal God to man. Of major importance, and of major importance to the argument of the book of Hebrews, is that angels were in charge of handing to man the law. 
God used angels to guide his people, to warn them, to encourage them, to announce the birth of Jesus, and also to announce the very resurrection of Jesus. Not only are angels used to reveal God to his people, but we saw that angels were used to protect and provide for the people of God. They were used throughout the Old Testament in examples of like Elijah and in the lives of Daniel and his friends. They also played prominent roles in the New Testament as angels took care of our Lord himself as recorded uh, in, in the Gospels. And we see angels have a very prominent role in the early church as they protected the apostles and watched over and provided for them. Angels are an amazing, amazing gift of God to the people of God. And once you understand the value of angels, it, it, it puts us in a solid position to understand the argument being advanced in the remainder of chapter 1. The main argument being advanced in the remainder of this chapter is that Jesus Christ is superior even to the angels. And we see this laid out very clearly in verse 4. We're going to begin with verse 3 because I don't want a trailing sentence there. So starting at the second half of verse 3 through verse 4. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He inherited is more excellent than theirs. So Jesus, argues the author of Hebrews, has inherited a name that is more excellent than that of the angels. He's going to spend the rest of the chapter laying out for us five ways, looking back from the Old Testament, he's going to argue five ways that Jesus is better than the angels. First, he argues that Jesus is far superior to the angels because Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? Which of the angels did He ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? The author is pointing us all the way back to Psalms. He's taking us to Psalm chapter 2, there in verse 7. And this is a, a Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It would have been used to speak of a king of Israel and also would have been used to point towards a Messiah. So in verse 7 of chapter 2, the king declares that Yahweh, this is the king making a declaration in Psalm 2, verse 7, the king, the king declares that Yahweh said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now this is not the only place in the New Testament that we see this uh, verse quoted. In fact, we see it also in Acts chapter 13. Remember there in Acts 13, Paul is preaching at a synagogue in Corinth. He goes through a very detailed argument uh, from the very beginning of the Old Testament on through. And he gets to the point of saying that Jesus Christ was, uh, has, had been raised from the dead. And he goes to Psalm 2.7 this exact point, you are my son, today I have begotten you to make this point. 
The resurrection is fulfillment of Jesus. It is a declaration that Jesus was the intended Messiah, the Son of God. And the author of Hebrews himself goes in another place in chapter 5, and he also quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Why? Well, we're not going to go far into that because we'll have time for that, but here's the point. He's making an argument that Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest. And he says that not like these other high priests who have to stand up and continue doing this, Jesus sat down and he is declared the very Son of God. And he quotes Psalm 2, verse 7. So the point is, Jesus Christ is the Son of God as seen by the fact that he was raised from the dead, as seen by the fact that he is the perfect high priest. And then in the second half of chapter 5, what, does the, uh, what is argued? Well, we saw there, for to which of the angels he ever say, you are my son, the day I have begotten you, or, and here comes another quote, again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Another quote from the Old Testament. This one comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a very, very important chapter in the Old Testament. This is the chapter where we get the Davidic covenant. You remember where David called Nathan uh, to him and he said, I want to build God a house that is a temple. Nathan said, well, I mean, it seems like a good idea to me. Sure, yeah, go ahead. Um, and then God came to Nathan that night and said, nah, that's not really a good idea. Uh, that's not what you're going to do. And I want you to go back and tell David, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house, meaning dynasty, right? I'm going to build a kingdom out of your lineage. And as he gives David the exact, uh, I mean, gives Nathan the exact words to go to David, that's where we get this quote out of 2 Samuel 7, 14. God says to David, um, God says to David, speaking about his son Solomon, he says this, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now we know that he's talking there about David's son Solomon because he goes, if you keep reading in chapter 2 Samuel chapter 7, the very next thing you're going to get to is how do we deal with the fact that he sins? Well, you, if you know much about Solomon, that was a pretty major problem. It cost the, the nation a lot, right? So he was talking about Solomon, but the argument of Hebrews is, yes, he's talking about Solomon, but ultimately, when he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, ultimately, it's pointing to who? To Jesus Christ. So in Psalm 2 and in 2 Samuel 7, the author of Hebrews is making an argument to us that Jesus is the Son of God. Now that sounds like a pretty big deal, but it's actually, it doesn't carry the weight in our culture as it would carry in the ancient Near East. The idea of sonship in the ancient Near East is paramount to about any other relationship you can think of. I think there's a couple ways to show this difference, uh, these differences, and I think it's helpful to see them. So let me ask this question. Men, 
Raise your hand if you are earning money the same way that you were, as your father earned money. Raise your hand if that would describe you. Okay? I see one, maybe two, okay, two, okay, two, so two. All right, most not the case, right? If I ask the exact same question in an audience in the ancient Near East, we may have one person raise their hand in disagreement to that. Every other hand would have just gone up as if you asked, does gravity make things fall, right? Well, of course I'm earning money the same way as my dad did. That's just the way life was, right? Why? Because a son does exactly what his father's doing. When you're born, you don't have to wonder about what your life's going to look like as a son. You just look at your father. I think another way to make the point, um, as many of you know, our current president has worked to mitigate his conflict of interest with his business dealings and his role as president by turning things over to his son. Now listen, I'm honestly not interested in whether you agree or disagree, if this is appropriate or necessary or anything like that. My point. My point is, it is at least reasonable in our culture that someone could do that, that someone could actually have a wall between their interests, the interests of a father, and the interests of a son. Let me tell you, that would never, ever, ever even get lift off in the ancient Near East. The idea that a father could ever have divided interests from his sons is impossible in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, if you see a father, you have seen a son, and if you have seen a son, you have seen a father. So the author of Hebrews is making a claim of all-out full divinity for Jesus Christ when he calls him the Son of God. All the interests of the Father are the interests of the Son. The character of the Father is the character of the Son. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God as argued in verse 3. And so while this is true for Jesus, this is not true for the angels. Instead of being referred to as a son of God, angels are considered hosts. They're ministers of God. They're, they're actually made to do His wills, expressed in Psalm 103. So Jesus is better than the angels, first and foremost, because Jesus is the Son of God. And in verse 6, we're told that Jesus is better than the angels because unlike the angels, Jesus is pre Imminent, verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. First, notice that Jesus is referred to as the firstborn of God. The idea of firstborn carries with it priority. It carries with it privilege and honor. Obviously, uh, the more important the family uh, one is born into, then the, one in, the more important the idea of being the firstborn is. Well, look at the stage on which Jesus is considered the firstborn. When He brings the firstborn into the world. We'll have time to do this if I gave you some notes there so you could see the connection. But if you actually look at chapter Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, I think you can see that when he's talking about world here, he's talking about the second coming of Jesus. 
So Jesus is the firstborn of all the new creation. And when he is seen in that realm, when he is seen at the second uh, advent, what happens? All the angels worship him. And then he makes this point. This is so interesting what he's doing. He's making a point about what's going to happen at the second coming of Christ by pulling back to something said hundreds of years prior in Psalm 97. Psalm 97.7 is, is where he refers to, and there we are told that the angels, there in that, your translation might have it as uh, all you gods, little g gods, referring to the angels, all the angels are commanded to worship, catch this, they're commanded to worship Yahweh. So the author is saying that Jesus is preeminent. He's so majestic that he will receive the worship of the angels in the second coming, a worship that is reserved for Yahweh himself. So while verse 6 quotes uh, uh, Psalm 97 showing us that Jesus is preeminent and worthy of worship, verse 7 quotes Psalm 104 to show us that the angels are just merely servants who Jesus can order around at will. Look at verse 7. Of the angels, he says, here comes the quote, he makes, this is out of Psalm 104, he makes his angels' winds and his ministers a flame of fire. He controls the angels. Jesus controls the angels in the same way he has full control over wind and over fire, over the creation that he preserves. Jesus is better than the angels. Because He's the Son of God, because He is preeminent, but also because He is the forever righteous King. Look with me at verses 8 through 9 as the argument continues. But of the Son He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Again, another royal psalm. So a psalm about kingship is being quoted. This time, it is Psalm 45. It's a very prominent psalm uh, extolling the virtues of the Messiah King. The author of Hebrews argues that this was written to point to Jesus. In Psalm 45, the King is declared as strong and righteous. Verse 6 is... Verses 6 and 7 declare that His kingdom, it'll never end. And uprightness will describe His rule. He is said to love righteousness and hate wickedness. Here the author of Hebrews is claiming that Jesus is a perfectly righteous King. He's actually incapable of doing wrong or displeasing God. He is impeccable. On the other hand, while many of the angels remain perfect and holy to this day, not all of them are. As we looked at last time, some have fallen. Some have chosen to rebel against God and have chosen wickedness instead of the holiness of God. See, for example, Genesis 6 or consider a passage like Matthew 25 which tells us of the punishment of the fallen angels. 
Ironically, the very power and position described of Jesus is the sort of power and position coveted by Satan in his rebellion that led to his falling away. Jesus is better than the angels because he's a forever righteous king who is incapable of any wickedness. Fourthly, Jesus is better than the angels because he is the creator. Verses 10 and 11 of Hebrews 1. And here comes a quote. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. Such a, such a beautiful picture. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Again, we're taken back to the Psalter. This time it's a Psalm 102. And this time it's about a psalm that is fully focused on Yahweh. You might actually see this psalm as very similar to the argument of Hebrews as a whole. That is, Psalm 102 expresses the discouragement of a follower of God. And yet, he overcomes his discouragement by considering the amazing power, perfection of Yahweh. In particular, Yahweh is, is seen as strong because Yahweh created and sustains all things. Verse 26 and 27 of Psalm 2 express how Yahweh will outlast everything that's created. He stands principally above all created things. Jesus is referenced, pointed to here in Hebrews as the Creator referred to in Psalm 102. He is the one who sustains. He is the one who will rebuild and will change the world to come. Unlike Jesus, who's the Creator and the Sustainer, angels themselves are created beings. Jesus was never created, but the angels were created by Him. We see this argued in Colossians chapter 1 as He talks about the invisible things created by Jesus. Jesus is better because He's the Son of God. Jesus is better because He is preeminent. Jesus is better because He is the forever righteous King. Jesus is better because He is the Creator. And now we're told that Jesus is better because He has sovereign control. Verse 13. And to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? for your feet. Again, the Psalter is turned to. This time we get the very, very famous Psalm 110. Also a royal psalm, also about the Messiah. If you trek across the New Testament, you will find this psalm quoted no less than 25 times. In fact, you probably remember it as Jesus uh, silenced the Pharisees at the very end of his ministry by quoting, by turning to Psalm uh, 110. Remember, he asked them to explain, how is it that David would refer 
to the Messiah as Lord. Why would David call the Messiah Lord? What did the Pharisees say? Nothing. What do you say to that? Right? Making a similar point. The author of Hebrews points to Psalm 110 and says, This is referring to Jesus. When it says the Lord, that's Yahweh, says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is Jesus Christ. Jesus, as already said in verse, in verse 3 of chapter 1, is seated at the right hand of God. He has full authority, full control. He's sovereign over every time, every person, and every place. While Jesus is in full control, the angels are not. By the grace of God, they are being used. And by the grace of God, they are ministering in incredible ways. For us who inherit salvation, verse 14 tells us that, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? This is tremendous news. No doubt. It's great to know that angels are working, ministering on our behalf. But it's a far different cry from the authority of Jesus Christ, who is the sovereign one in charge. Jesus is sovereign. Angels are servants. Jesus is better than the angels. Let me guess, venture a guess here, friends. That like me, many of you probably did not struggle much this week with being tempted to think that or treat the angels as better than Jesus. I'm going to venture a guess that like me, many of you didn't struggle with trusting angels too much instead of trusting Jesus. Now we do have reasons to think that this was a real deal for the people of Hebrews. There's reason to think that they did place trust in certain angels, especially like the archangel Michael. So this was an issue for them. But what's the takeaway for us? If we don't really struggle with that temptation, that is the temptation to trust angels over Jesus, what for us? Well, let me venture another guess. That like me, you might have been tempted this week to put your hope or your faith or your longing, your hoping into something ahead of Jesus Christ. The application of the book of Hebrews is very straightforward. Chapter after chapter, we are going to be encouraged to persevere in the faith because Jesus is enough for us, full stop. So let me tell you why I find chapter 1 helpful. As I consider even in a week, the various things I trusted in, I long for hoped about. Things that held sway over my attention. None of these were angels. But it might have been better if they were. That is, as you consider the incredible role of angels, how beautiful they are. How wonderful they are. 
and then you consider that Jesus is far better than even the angels, then how much better is Jesus than many of the things that held my trust and attention? Christianity is centered upon the amazing news, the revelation that Jesus Christ is enough. Church, it's a group of folks who partner together around this news. Week in and week out, we come together to encourage one another with Jesus is enough. We say it to each other in our songs. We, we hear it preached. We hope in it in our prayers. We encourage each other with our words. Why do we gather? It's not because it's earning a bit of merit for us. It's because we need to persevere by being reminded that Jesus Christ, He is enough. Imagine for a second with me a fellow, let's call him Henry. And let's... Let's say that Henry hears some news that leads Henry to believe that gold will be the most valuable of all investments by an order of magnitude for anything closest to it. How will you know if Henry actually believes that news? Well, because Henry will invest all his money. I mean, every bit of it. He'll take money out of his savings account, his retirement account, the kid's college fund, his, anything left over the checking account. Everything's going to be put into gold. That would make sense if you really believe that news. If Henry does that, whether he's right or not, if the news is right or not, if he does that, I promise you, you will at least believe that Henry believes that news. Furthermore, if it turns out to be a complete hoax, Henry will be an utterly devastated fool. He's not diversified his portfolio whatsoever. How do we know if Jesus, if we believe that Jesus is enough and better than anything else? Well, how are we investing? Are we investing in Jesus as one of many good alternatives? Or are we investing in Jesus like He is better than anything else? I am very tempted to invest in Jesus with a diversified portfolio. You know, put a little in Jesus, a little bit over here, and a little bit over there as well. What if tomorrow I found out that the news about Jesus Christ is being declared from Hebrews. It's being declared across the New Testament. What if I found out it was a hoax? Would someone look at the money that I've spent, the time that I've invested, prayers that I've prayed, time learning scriptures, gathering with saints, and say, that is one utterly devastated fool. Or would someone look at me and say, yeah, he's lost a little bit. I know he's not happy about that. But he's still got investments in lots of other places. He'll recover just fine. The application of Hebrews is that we can hang on and persevere through the Christian life only if we stop diversifying our portfolio and we put it all, all of it, in the news that Jesus Christ is better than anything 
else. Christianity is the news that Jesus is the Son of God. He's preeminent above all. He's the forever righteous King. He is the Creator. He is the Sovereign One in charge. And yet all of this comes from one other major piece of news. As we close, let me take us back to a word I looked over in chat in verse 4. It's back there, the trailing verse, our sentence of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is two words in English, it's one word in the Greek, beginning of verse 4. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. Having become. Now that's odd. How does one who's eternal, never had a beginning, never has, will have an end, how does he become? Why would they say that? It's because at the very core of having become is the central news of Christianity. It's the amazing good news. It's the gospel. Jesus became the one who is above all things after first becoming the one who is who was beneath all things. As verse 3 states, after making purification for sins, after making purification for sins, he sat down. Every person in this room has a major problem. Our sins have made a massive mess between us and God. Not only is the mess more massive than we can imagine, there is literally nothing we can do to fix it. It is an unfixable, massive mess. The good news, the gospel, is that Jesus Christ became something He was not. He became sin for us. He became a massive mess that we might become something we are not. The righteousness of God. I point you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you are here and you haven't banked everything on Jesus, then you stand owning your massive mess. It is yours to own and you will hold it for eternity. I entreat you to see Jesus as the only one who can make purification for sins. May the Word of God lead us this morning to embrace and believe the amazing news of Christianity. Jesus Christ is better. He's better than all the angels. He's bigger than our sin. He's worthy of our devotion. Jesus Christ is enough. Let's pray.